everyone, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading Betsy Tin Boom, Promise of God, by Mike Evans, with permission from Time Worthy Books, and we are on Chapter 20. For the next several years, I worked upstairs with Aunt Anna. She taught me to cook in ways I'd never imagined and showed me things about housekeeping that saved time and effort. She also taught me the needlepoint stitches that I didn't know existed. I still missed Mama and occasionally retreated to the rooftop to sit among her flowers each spring. But I was at peace with her absence, and my life reached a settled routine. Then one day, as the approaching fall brought us cool, crisp mornings, and Anna failed to appear for breakfast. I sent Corey to check on her, but she found the bedroom door closed and assumed Aunt Anna was still dressing. That was unlike her, and twice while I was setting the table, I thought to check on her again, but I didn't. When Papa came down to join us, he insisted we look in on her, so I went to her room. The door was still closed, but I tapped on it lightly and pushed it open. Aunt Anna, wearing a blue cotton dress that was her favorite, lay crossways on the bed with her arms spread wide, her face pointed towards the ceiling, and her eyes closed. Her feet were bare, and I tickled the bottom of one, thinking she was dozing. She gave no response. Then I shook it. Aunt Anna, I said playfully, time to get up. There was still no response, so I stepped to the hallway and called for Papa. He took one look at her and sent Corey for Dr. Van Veen. A few minutes later, he confirmed what we had already suspected. Aunt Anna was dead. William conducted her funeral, and we buried her near Mama. She had lived with us for as long as we could remember. Papa assured us there was a time when she led a life of her own, but even he couldn't recall the day she arrived at our house to stay for good. Losing her wasn't as traumatic as losing Mama, but her absence left a gaping hole in our lives. After she was gone, the bayet became very quiet and very empty, but it didn't last for long. About a month after Aunt Anna's death, a customer in the shop mentioned that Elka Norfim, one of our neighbors, was sick. Elka had two young children, a girl named Estella and a boy named Daniel. I couldn't bear the thought that they might be hungry, So I cooked up a meal, placed it in a picnic basket, and carried it to them. They lived about two blocks away. When we arrived at Elkin's apartment, I found she was far sicker than we first thought. She was in a bed under three blankets, shivering from a fever. Estella and Daniel sat on a sofa in the front room. I can still see them in my mind. Their thin little bodies with dark circles around their eyes and an emotionless expression on their faces. I set the basket on the kitchen table and checked on Elka. Then I returned to dish out the food. Elka was too sick to eat, but Estella and Daniel watched my every move as I prepared bowls of soup for them and set it on the table with hunks of bread and fresh butter. They slurped it up, and I knew then that I'd been right. Those children were hungry and in need of attention. While they ate, I returned to Elka's room and gently placed my palm against her forehead. She was hot to the touch. I tried to talk to her, but she was shivering so hard she couldn't respond. So I busied myself straightening the room and listening as she labored to catch a breath. After an hour or so, I returned to the bayet. Corey glanced up from her desk as I entered. How was Elka? Not good. I need you to find Dr. Van Veen and take him to her apartment. Now? Yes, now. She's sicker than we first thought. I can't go off on an errand like that, she protested. I have too much work. I lowered my voice and leaned over her. Elka is sick and will likely die before morning. 
Her children are there with her, all by themselves. They need help, and we're the ones to give it to her. The kids aren't in school? No, and from the look of it, they haven't eaten in a while. But you fed them. Yes, I fed them, but they need more help. Get Dr. Van Veen and go over there. They'll need some place to say, Papa added. If she dies, the police will come and write a report. If no one's there to take the children, the police will put them in the orphan's home. I looked over at Corey. Then you better be there to take them. We can't take them. We won't just take them. We'll tell the police why we're there, to get the children so they don't have to go to the orphan's home. The police will understand. But how will we know when to go? I gave her a knowing look. She stared at me a moment, and then a look of realization came over her. No, she said, shaking her head. I'm not sitting over there waiting for her to die. You stay tonight. I'll go over in the morning. She sat there in silence, elbow propped on the desktop, glaring up at me. I knew she didn't want to go, but I was certain Elka was not going to survive, and we had to be ready to care for her children. After a moment, Papa cleared his throat. Corey, he said, I think she's right. Reluctantly, Corey pushed back her chair from the desk and stood, and there put on a sweater and started toward the door. As she left, I took Lewis from the shop and went upstairs to prepare rooms for the children. When the furniture was arranged and everything was in place, I returned to the kitchen and put on a pot of stew. Lewis went back to the shop. Late that night, I was awakened to find Corey standing over me. Elka died, she said grimly. I brought Estella and Daniel home with me. Where are they? In the parlor. I sat up, swung my feet over the side of the bed. Any trouble with the police? Corey took my robe from the chair by the door and held it for me. No, I told them what you said. She explained as I stood and slipped on the robe that I was there to get the children. They just nodded and told me to get them out of the apartment. What time is it? After midnight. Are they sleeping? I don't think so. Poor things are probably starving. I tied the sash of the robe around my waist and followed Corey down to the kitchen. The pot of stew I'd put on earlier was on a back burner. I felt it with my hand and found it was still warm. A ladle hung from a peg on the left, and I used it to fill two bowls. Corey placed them on the table and then added bread and glasses of milk. And when I was ready, Estella and Daniel came in from the parlor. And while they ate, I motioned for Corey to follow me back to the kitchen. We stood together near the sink. Did Ralph Ameling come by Elka's apartment? Yes, he was one of the patrolmen. Did he say anything? Not really. I think he knew why I was there. They wanted us to come down to the station later today. Dr. Van Veen came too? Yes. I sent a neighbor to find him and to tell the police. Do you think they'll cause trouble? Not really. Not Ralph, at least. I nodded towards the children. Look at them. They ate that stew like they hadn't eaten in a week. It wasn't much over there to eat. A lady across the hall brought a few sandwiches, and that was about it. They're dirty, too. No telling when they last had a bath. We can take care of that right now, I replied. Even though it was late, when Estella and Daniel had eaten, we gave each of them a bath. They were quite dirty. Then I found some clothes for them to wear for the night, and we put them in bed. They had a little trouble getting to sleep. With such a late night, I assumed the children would remain in bed until noon, but the next morning they were at breakfast with us. As we sat at the table watching them eat, I smiled over at Corey and Papa. This is what we will do. Corey had a questioning look. What will we do? About what? With this empty house, I said, gesturing to the room around us, we will make our house a home for those in need. That, my dear, Papa said with a smile, is exactly what your mother would want.
Later that morning, Ralph stopped by the shop and asked to see me. I assumed he was there to question us about Estella and Daniel and to tell us they were doing everything they could to find their relatives. Instead, after politely inquiring about their condition, he glanced down at the floor and said, I hate to add to your troubles, but do you have a room for one more? Of course, I replied with hesitation. We always have room for one more. Who is it? I found a boy last night, he explained. Says his name is Edmund Hink. Looks to be about seven years old. He was sleeping in a doorway two blocks down the street. Apparently no place to call home. Where is he now? He spent most of the night at the jail. We had no other place for him, just waiting for a bed at the children's home. Papa spoke up. Bring him here. I'm not sure we can do that right right now, Ralph replied. I was just asking in case we can't get him in the home. Nonsense, I blurted out. Of course you can bring him. I'll go with you. We'll get him now. I opened the door and started outside. Ralph hesitated, lingering near Corey's desk. Come on, I said insistently. Let's get the boy. He tipped his hat to Corey and Papa and followed me out to the sidewalk. As we walked towards the station, I said, In the future, when you find children like this with nowhere to go, you should not take them to the police station, but bring them to the shop. We'll care for them. That's rather irregular, but having a child in jail that houses adult criminals is even worse. I see your point. But as for this young boy, Edmund, you will make sure they have no place for him at the children's home, won't you? I'm sorry, ma'am. He looked confused. I'm not sure I understand. I don't think it would be good for him to get settled with us and then uproot him just to take him to the children's home. I smiled over at him. I mean, by then, he will already have a home with us. So what good would it do to move him? Yes, ma'am, Ralph nodded. I see your point indeed. Three nights later, Ralph knocked on the shop door. I went down to answer it and found Ralph there with a young boy. His name was Jans Lensdart, and so the practice continued. And over the next several years, we cared for a dozen children this way. Some of them were with us for only a brief stay before being placed with family members. Others grew up in the Bayer and became a second family for us, attending the same school Corey and I attended praying with each of us each morning at breakfast and each evening after supper, laughing, arguing, and becoming wonderful young men and women. Well, that's the end of chapter 20. That was a short one. And next week we'll do chapter 21 and find out more about these foster children that their their Tempoon family's been caring for. I love you. I'm praying for you. And bye-bye for now. Good night, Aiden.